you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 5. Uh, we're going to pick up in the Gospel of Mark where we have been moving uh, through most of this year, uh, making our way through Mark's Gospel, uh, exploring really the fundamental question that Mark poses to us and to his audience is, who is Jesus? And Mark has begun to answer those questions in various ways. And as we've looked over the last couple of weeks, there are things that Jesus has done that cause uh, the people in his day and us rightly to pause when Jesus shows his authority and power over the storm and calms, calms the storm. Uh, later last week, we looked at this moment where Jesus uh, spoke and with authority uh, cast out demons out of an individual. And and Mark continues to give us these moments where Jesus does something or says something that causes the people around him, even his own disciples, to stop and evaluate who is, who is Jesus? Who is he really? And who is he to us? And so Mark continues to give us more insight into this, helping us answer this question of who is Jesus in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. So let's pick up there this morning. It says, when Jesus had crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around them. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So let's stop there and, 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 and introduce our, our, our characters this morning, those that are in the scene with Jesus. There's Jairus, the synagogue leader. Uh, he was a, a man who would have been the lead elder within that area, within that village, within their, their, their synagogue. So he would have structured the church. He would have organized the worship gathering. And so Jairus was uh, a very devout uh, Jewish leader, respected, and as you can see within this passage, desperate. His, his daughter is dying. And so there's this uncertainty. You already begin like, what does he really believe about Jesus? And we don't really know, but we can say this. He knows that Jesus can possibly help him. He has a need. And so whether he fundamentally believes with everything that Jesus is saying theologically and doctrinally and who Jesus, there's something that he sees in Jesus of Jesus' power and maybe even his willingness to help. And so Jairus falls at his feet, asks Jesus to come with him back to his home. And Jesus says, yes, Jesus is willing to go with him. And on their way, as the crowds continue to follow, as the crowds press into Jesus, there is another woman that we're introduced. It says a woman was there. And this woman had had this issue of bleeding, this issue of blood for a long period of time, this chronic condition, which left her ceremonially unclean. Now, we, we encounter this throughout the scriptures, especially throughout the gospels, of this condition that people are in, that Jesus seems to interact with, of this being unclean and what that means. And so she was dealing with a condition in which the Old Testament and the Old Testament law, the rabbinical laws, would have had her be excluded be, um, from worship, from the synagogue. She, she, she couldn't have gone to church today. Maybe you've had one of those mornings where you woke up on a Sunday and weren't feeling well. And so you just told everybody, hey, I'm going to sleep in. And it, it was restful. It was kind of nice. It was actually a break. And you stayed home. 
uh, and you recovered. But in her situation, she stayed home but didn't recover. And in fact, she, she grew worse. And, and the situation persisted to the point that she could no longer go to church because they believed that her condition uh, was infectious. That this state that she was living in, this being unclean, uh, was contagious to other people. And so other people who wanted to go to church, who wanted to go to synagogue, who wanted to operate kind of within the normal routines of life, could not interact with her, couldn't touch her, couldn't contact her. And so what was maybe a break at first of just a, a release from the typical routine and the busyness of her life turned into a period of isolation. In fact, because of this condition, this chronic persistence of bleeding that she was experiencing that left her in a state of being unclean, this would have given her husband permission to divorce her. So she was at some point likely married and now likely divorced. So she has lost her husband. She has been excluded from the place that gave her hope where she could hear God's word, where she could go to the synagogue or to the temple and understand the atonement for her sins and the work that God had done her. She was excluded from that, shunned from that. She was separated from her family. So she's no longer a wife. She's no longer a mom. She is completely isolated. So I don't want you to miss her condition, where she is and what's happening as she reaches out. And she's tried every remedy, the scriptures say. She has gone to doctors and all of their advice, all of their treatments have actually made her worse. Now, in the Talmud, a collection of Jewish teachings and writings, they actually speak to certain ways, to certain remedies for this persistence of blood. Let me read you just a few of these things so that you can understand what she likely has gone through. It says this, take three pints of Persian onions, boil them in wine, and give her a drink, and say, arise from thy condition. If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet. Let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come behind her and frighten her. Say, arise from that condition. I see there's two of these remedies involve wine, which I think is interesting. <laughs> Additional cures, listen to this one. Um, carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and a cotton bag in winter. Uh, these are the things that she has likely done. And you can see why she's not getting better. You know, there's, there's something about this, this, this uh, what's led to this. These, these are superstitious at best. And so these two stories that Mark's gospel gives us, it's interesting. He, he gives us this, this urgency of this respected Jewish synagogue leader kind of ushering Jesus to his house. And along the way, there's this woman who also has a need. And Mark, Mark allows these two stories to, to, to overlap and to interconnect so that you and I might glean from both of them. There's this outer story of Jairus. There's this inner story of the woman. And, and Mark allows these two things to kind of come together in a way as he tells the story so that we realize you've got one one is a rich person and one is poor. One is accepted and one is an outcast. But both, both are desperate. Both need something. Both are seeking Jesus. And so in verse 27, we pick up with the, Jesus and the interaction with the woman. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak 
because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body, and she felt it in her body, and she was freed from her suffering. And at once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. Now, I just find it interesting. I mean, there's all kinds of things. Like, when, when does the healer, right, um, when does someone touch the healer and healed versus the healer touching the recipient, right? There's, there's this curious dynamics going on here. And, and Jesus has realized that something has happened, that power has left him. She has approached Jesus believing something, holding on to something, touching his clothes, believing there's something that could happen even if she just reaches out and, t- and touches the hem or the corner of his garment. And I want to tell you what I think she's holding on to. I want to show this to you. In Numbers chapter 15, 38, God's word spoke, God directed the people, says, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments. And so there were, the way the Jewish men, especially the priests and the rabbis dressed, they would wear these garments and their garments would actually have corners to them with these tassels that would be connected. And over the time, um, their prayer shawls began to reflect this picture of numbers, of numbers 15, of having tassels on the corners of their garment. So maybe you've never seen one of these before, but if you look at this Jewish prayer shawl, you'll see it has these tassels, these strings at the end of the corners. And and they were deeply symbolic. Uh, every, everything about the prayer shawl uh, spoke to something about God's provision or God's word. Uh, the five knots within the tassel were the, to remember the five first books of the Bible. The spaces between the knots, the four spaces, were to remind you the four consonants of God's name, Yahweh. And there's the certain thread count in here. The, the stripes, all of them had different meanings to them. And so there was something about this garment that this woman reached out to touch the the corner or the hem of the garment. Now, what's interesting too is that the corner of the garment is this Hebrew word kanaf. And the word kanaf has another meaning as well. Not just corner, kanaf, but it can mean wings. The word kanaf can mean corner or wings. Now, this speaks to a prophetic passage about the Messiah in Malachi chapter four, verse two. It says this, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Now, the sun of righteousness will come. This is a prophetic passage about the Messiah. When he came, that he would have healing in his kanaf, in the corners, in the wings. Now, to add to this double meaning, often when rabbis uh, would give the benediction, they would, they would raise their arms like this to bless the crowd. And you can see this picture of wings. And so as this woman is reaching out for Jesus to touch the corners, to touch the tassel on his, on his prayer shawl, on his garment, she's believing something about him. She's believing something that he might be the Messiah. She's believing something about the clothing that he's wearing, that it has power, that it, there's a possibility that it could heal her. And in Matthew chapter 5, Mark 5, verse 30, it says, when she touched him and Jesus felt the power go out of him, it says, he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? 
But Jesus was looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. So I want you to see this. Jesus is in a crowd. He's walking through people. People are pressing in upon him. Everybody is touching him, but something that Jesus, somebody has touched him in a certain way. Somebody has grabbed onto the corner of his prayer shawl and he has felt the power go out of him and something has gone on. And so Jesus stops the whole crowd and he waits. And he asks the question, who, who touched me? The disciples are confused. Jairus is there. You can imagine Jairus' anxiety here too. Like, why are we stopping? Everybody is touching you. And Jesus waits. He waits. It's, It's, you know, for Jairus, this has to be like stopping the ambulance as it's driving by and asking the driver how he's doing. Like, this... Why are we dealing with this issue, Jesus? My daughter is dying. We need to go. And Jesus waits. And he lingers. And you see that something more is going on here. Why does Jesus wait? Why does Jesus call her forward? What's important here? she, She wanted to touch Jesus in secret. She didn't want to be exposed. She knew that her presence, she knew that reaching out and touching a rabbi in the way that she did could contaminate him. And so she, is, has, she has a fear of being exposed right now. And Jesus calls her to go public. Jesus calls her out because she needed it. Verse 34, Jesus said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. See, Jesus was helping her in this moment. What he wanted to make sure is she believed that if she touched Jesus' clothing, that something could happen. And what Jesus wanted her to leave with, to make sure that she knew, is it wasn't the clothing that saved her. It wasn't the clothing that healed her. It was her faith in Jesus. It was Jesus. That's where the power was. It wasn't in the garment. It, it wasn't in the clothing. Jesus saying, you don't have to look for power in things. You have me. Your faith in me. She thought that it was the garment that would heal her. And Jesus is identifying her, calling her out, slowing down in this moment, making this moment go public to tell her that it is her faith that healed her. It's her faith in Jesus that allows her now to go into freedom. Jesus called her out because he didn't just want her physically healed. He wanted her whole. He wanted her well. To make her faith clear and strong. And for all of us to realize that Jesus isn't a superstitious healer. If you're an avid sports fan, maybe you have engaged in some type of superstitious activity or behavior at some point to help your team win, right? You, you, you grew a beard that season, you, you didn't wash certain clothing. You wore your hat a certain way. Uh, you sat in the chair that, you, that the, the team won in last week and everybody else had a certain place where they needed to be, right? There's these things that we do in order to somehow create the right situation, to kind of form the right magic, to, to create the opportunity for the thing, for the outcome that we want to happen. And so what Jesus is reminding us then is to figure out like, 
what do we need to do next? And this is often how we go to God, like, God, I, I, I need help. I need something. So, you know, do we grow more facial hair? Do we sit in the right seat? Who do we need? What sign do we need to touch? What verse do we need to repeat? Right? All of these things. And what Jesus wanted to make sure that this woman didn't go away with is Jesus is not a superstitious healer. Jesus is Savior. He, he's, he's already disposed to our rescue. And you don't have to get the words right. And there isn't a certain formula or a certain prayer that, that makes God love you anymore. That we go to the one, we have faith in the one who loves us even when we are not loving. And so it isn't, it, we're freed from this experience of have I been good enough to be healed or have I been bad enough to now avoid it or what does God think of me in this moment? Jesus says it's not about you. It's not about what you touch or what you say or what you do. It's what you believe in your heart and your faith. Your faith in me. That's the freedom. That's the place that, he's, uh, that he is freeing her to go into. The one who has come to save. He's the one who loves even when we don't. So Jesus has this really important moment as he lingers in this crowd with this woman and then there's Jairus, right? He's like, you know, come on, Jesus. My daughter's dying. And in verse 35, this is, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Now he says, hang on, Jairus, I'm still coming to your house. Hang on. But you can imagine what Jairus is feeling like anyone is, what does that matter now? That the moment is gone. Whatever thought we thought was going to happen, whatever hope was going to happen, whatever physical healing that you might have been able, it's, she's died. And I'll offer you this, is God's sense of timing, it confuses us. I don't know if you've ever been out of the country, if you've ever gone to a, a, another area of the world where they just approach time differently. I can re remember going to a certain church service and looking at my watch and kind of asking people, hey, are we about to start? And they were like, well, we'll start when we start. I go, well, you know, when people get here. I was like, well, should they be here? Like, it's, isn't it time? And, and certain, you go to a wedding in another country and the wedding will begin when the wedding begins. You know, it's, there's this sense of punctuality and this sense of time that we have within our culture. And I wonder, does it help or hinder us from understanding what God is up to? God's sense of timing. And Jesus says to him, don't be afraid, just believe. Charles is like, believe what? Like, you're asking a lot more of me at this point because it's not a physical healing that you're asking me to believe in. It's a resurrection. Like you're asking me to believe that she's going to come back from the dead now. Verse 38. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? This child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Once you see this, I just thought, you know, this crying, the wailing. Uh, within this culture, they had professional mourners, professional wailers. It's already begun. 
There are people that were paid to come into your home to, to cry and to mourn and to lament. And in, in a way, it, it freed and allowed everyone else to, to do what was necessary, to feel the weight of the moment and to be free to cry and to be free to feel sorrow. And, and that's already happening. They're already wailing. There's already a commotion. The people already are dealing with her death. And Jesus says she's only asleep. And in verse 40, after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Talitha kum. It's an Aramaic phrase. And I'd, I'd offer you, it's curious why the scripture, why Mark left this Aramaic for us. All these other words that you're reading about the scripture, they're, they're, not, they're in another language. And yet they're translated for us. And yet over time, Mark chose to keep this phrase kind of set apart. He wanted you to hear these words, Talitha kum. He didn't want you to miss that. As the story would then go forward to other Gentiles around the world, it was this idea that whenever Peter and others told the story, they were to keep these words as they were. And this is what it means, Talitha kum. It means little girl or, or literally little lamb. It's what, how you and I might go to one of our children and say, honey, or sweetheart. And he says, honey, as he takes her by the hand, it's time to get up. Just like any parent would, sitting down on the edge of their child's bed, kind of lifting them up into a new day. And here she is. She sees Jesus. She's facing the greatest enemy that humanity has ever encountered, death. And Jesus takes her by the hand and he just lifts her out of it. Sweetheart, wake up. So think about this passage, this section with the woman and Jairus. There's some takeaways that I think are important for us as we think about who this person is, who Jesus is, and what God is revealing to us. And one is this delays. The delays bring far more to the woman and to Jairus than they thought, than they even expected. When God was slow, when God feels slow, when it feels like God's not dealing with the issues that we want him to, when it feels like he doesn't care, he's not paying attention, there's something... 12 years, did you realize this? That the woman had been dealing with this chronic issue for 12 years. That's a long time. That's a long time to wonder what God is up to. That's a long time to suffer. That's a long time to feel the debilitation. That's a long time to be isolated. 12 long years. And then there's 12 short years. This girl, her life was so short. She's already passed 12 years. It's just begun there's so much more for her. And so whether you feel like 
things have taken too long or where you think things are moving too fast, it's just too short. Both of these perspectives are present when the idea of God's timing is just different than ours and God's delays don't mean that he's off the clock, that God is doing something and that we always get more with Jesus than we expected. There's always more. There's always more that he's doing. As Jesus lingers, he gives this woman something greater than superstitious faith that she leaves with faith in him, not in his closing. With Jairus, Jairus doesn't get just a physical healing, he gets a resurrection. He gets a greater miracle than what he even was hoping for or asking for. In each case, it's more than we thought. It's more than what we would expect. Why would we want to hurry somebody that powerful and that loving? Grace rarely operates on our timetable. And the concern is this, if you hurry Jesus along, you may miss the greater thing. If you hurry Jesus along, you may miss feeling loved. That Jesus is just unhurried. And as he goes with power, with discernment, he goes with compassion. God's delays often bring about more than we could have ever thought or hoped for. And secondly, I'd say this, both stories are about fear and faith. Fear and faith. The woman, what is she fearing? Rejection? Right? She fears to hope again. Have you felt that? Like, I just don't want to believe again. Like, I've been disappointed time and time again. Like, you just don't want to hope. She feels being rejected again and this, this fear to openly request help. To be discovered when she's received it. And I love this, when life, when life begins to just crowd around you, maybe all you can do is creep up behind Jesus and reach out to him. Maybe that's all you can do. And her faith was incomplete. Her faith was superstitious. Her faith wasn't fully formed, but her faith was real. And as she put her faith in Jesus, Jesus did something far better for her. She left with freedom. She left with something. And what starts small, what starts shaky, what starts incomplete, what starts scared, over time for the believer turns into something strong and something fierce. You go to Jesus quite often because you're desperate, because you need him to do something. And when Jesus touches your life and you find yourself in love with him even more, he becomes something so amazing, so captivating, so powerful for us, and we trust him with all of our lives. It starts in this fragile, desperate way, always, but it turns into something even more. Jairus, what was he afraid of? I think Jairus had this fear that what's, what's broken stays broken. What's what dies is gone. That there are moments where things have to happen a certain way and after that, the opportunity is lost, it's over. I had a moment a few weeks ago where a good friend uh, who was part of this church years ago called me up and I hadn't spoken to him in a long time. And he said, hey, God has just put, me, put you on my, my mind and I just want to, call and, and 
talked for a little bit. I was like, absolutely. And we're driving down the road and I'm listening to him. He says, I need to tell you something that I've never told you before that I should have told you. He says, but years ago, I don't know. He says, Ross, it could have been nine or 10 years ago. You said something in a sermon and it bothered me. And I never told you that. And what I found is over time, I just pulled away from you. And I have been reminded of that, that whether you knew that our relationship was distant, that I was not comfortable, I was not seeking you out anymore, that I had let the friendship go away. And, and God has reminded me this a couple different times, but I just realized I just need to call you and, and tell you that. And I'm not even sure I can remember exactly what you said. And you know what? That very week, I was going through some old sermons, just trying to remember certain things that I might have said or, or taught on. And I read a particular sermon where as I read it, I thought, that's an interesting thing that I said. I don't know if I would say it like that again. Like if I could do that message over right there, I probably wouldn't have said that. And as I'm talking to the one, I said, could it be this sermon and this moment? And he's like, yes. That's exactly the statement. I can remember that statement. And it's 10 years old. And he and I both, like, driving down Whitesburg, and I don't, he's in some other part of the country. Like, I was just like, God's doing something. I could just feel the, you know, the, the hair rise up on my arms that, okay, Lord, not only did you, have you been prompting him to say this to me, but you've been preparing my own heart to receive that and even apologize and I realize that what God is doing behind the scenes, sometimes we're unaware of it, but God is making all things new. And the things that you think are broken are not always broken. They'll not always stay like that. That God is working, shaping things to something better, better than what we even thought or imagined. Jairus' daughter has died. And Jesus is telling him, just hold on. Just believe. And he's like, believe what? What do you want me to believe in this moment? But Jairus takes Jesus to the place of his hurt, to his disappointment. I would offer you that there's something there for us that the broken places, the places of our disappointment, that we take Jesus there. That we bring Jesus to those places of brokenness and hurt and wounds and let Jesus say, open your eyes, wake up, I'm going to show you something, honey, sweetheart, little lamb. What Mark is giving us is, is a new reality of who Jesus is and who we are with, to him and within this kingdom. He's not just giving us physical miracles. Right? He, he's showing us something else that we believe in, that Jesus is the one who has been resurrected. Jesus is the one who's overcome death, that your life and my life have an eternal bond and connection to a healing that will, that will extend forever, that there's things that Jesus is able to do and he is compassionate and caring in his own heart, tender in heart and power towards us to see our lives radically shaped and radically transformed. And my encouragement to you is like, touch that. Reach out for that. Come with scared, shaky, 
incomplete, even superstitious faith, but trust in Jesus. Reach out for him. And I would offer you this. Don't stop short with a physical miracle. You may be going through your mind right now thinking of all the things that you wish God would touch and change and heal, but the greatest miracle of all is that he would touch and heal your relationship with him. That you would reach out to Jesus as your Lord and Savior and establish something far greater than a temporary physical miracle, but something eternal and transformational where your soul and spirit connect with Jesus in a way that brings you awake and alive and new. And he wants to do that. Let's pray. Listen to Hebrews chapter four, verse 16. It says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The question I would ask you to just reflect on, to bring to the Lord this morning is what does it look like for you to trust and believe this morning? Believing that with God all things are possible. Believing that God's timing is right. Have you been trying to schedule a miracle? But this morning God might say, I'm doing something and it's more than what you're even praying for. But it's what your heart needs it's what your relationship with the Father needs. That you might leave here in new freedom. You might go into peace from this place with God. And so Jesus, could we, could we have some space here in this moment? Would you linger with us just a little bit to, to call us out and to speak to our hearts? God, if we're trying to reach out and touch you this morning, would you take us by the hand and pull us towards you? God, what do our hearts need to hear this morning to trust and believe you more deeply? Holy Spirit, use this time as we reflect and as we worship, as we sing, as we pray. As we do sing, I know at both campuses there will be people ready and able to pray and be willing to speak to you and encourage you and to come alongside this moment of trust or belief that God is drawing you into. And so I just encourage our prayer team to be ready. Jesus, would you show us your power this morning? power to change our hearts and our minds would you show us your tenderness and care this morning that we not need to be afraid that perfect love casts out all fear and that we might leave here with a greater expression of belief and trust in you